0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Roy Deach, CEO of Parts Badger. With an education background from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Berkeley, Roy is no stranger to education and continued learning. From being a company owner back in 2003, to a chief operating officer for two other companies, to then being a CEO of now a second company, Roy's success continues to grow. Currently CEO of Parts Badger, which is a fast-growing company all about offering a revolutionary change to the way that people and business source their custom parts. Parts Badger is an online machine shop offering custom CNC parts for entrepreneurs, engineers, product designers, manufacturers, and makers alike. Their streamlined approach makes it possible to define your specifications, determine your part complexity, and instantly receive a quote to get your part or prototype made. Headquarters in Cedarsburg, Wisconsin, Parts Badger has quickly made a splash and earned its spot on the Inc. 5000 list in 2021. Here to share a bit about himself and his journey is Roy. So Roy, my new friend, thank you for being here. Thanks thanks for having me. So we took our stab at kind of understanding a little bit of both your story and the Parts Badger story. But uh, in your own words, how did you come to be in this? (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: I'd like to start uh, by saying thank you for the opportunity. Um, That was quite the intro. I I definitely don't feel like I have that that level of resume or accolades. I mean, definitely uh you know my experience in the startup world and the small hustle businesses but um yeah i'll tell you a little bit about parts badger and how we got started uh at the time which is around maybe 2015 2016. uh i had another business we developed and manufactured video recorders for helicopters which is a really cool business but it's small it's a very small market there aren't that many helicopters in the world yeah sure um And uh, so basically we make these electronics, we put them in an enclosure, and then they put that in the helicopter record video. And we wanted to get a machined enclosure. So machining is basically where you tab a block of material, they use cutting tools in a big machine to make a finished part. And uh, part of that process, it makes it very flexible, dynamic, responsive. So we wanted to make our enclosures that way. And we sent out 12 requests for quotes to local companies. First time we ever tried to buy a machine part. Um, just checking my inbox, waiting for responses. It took about a week. I got responses from three of the 12 companies. Uh, two said their software was too old and I couldn't open the file I had sent them. And then the yeah, and then the one company that quoted us it was actually cheaper for us to buy a machine and make the parts ourselves. So yeah, that, that's when I kind of realized like this market is broken. Like it shouldn't be this hard to get a quote. Like, that's not even making the parts. I'm just trying to get a quote and it takes a yeah. week. Um, so that, that's when I kind of saw, right, there, there's some room for growth here. There's some opportunity that that maybe we can do things a little bit differently and and make things a little bit more streamlined.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to back up to the helicopter yeah. camera business. What what lessons did you take from that experience?
1: Uh, what not to do? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm a little stubborn. Um I I love to learn but uh sometimes things take a while before I understand them. And in the helicopter business, I think I I just spent, you know, the first I don't know, 5 6 years of my career doing everything wrong. Um, you know, focusing mm-hmm. on the wrong things, you know, trying to really exploit this really specific niche and eventually like it, we created a really successful business in a really tiny market. Um, and I knew that was kind of the wrong approach. The only thing left we need to do is just try something in a bigger market. And when this machine parts idea kind of came about, uh, it's about a $60 billion a year market. It's like one of the biggest markets out there because it's a a fundamental manufacturing process.
0: So. I love that. So if you were to use that like as as a case study, right? Like let's say you were teaching other entrepreneurs, hey, here's some Here's some things you're going to want to think about. One, it sounds like is, have you really researched the market size to see how big this idea could get? Is that one? Yeah, of-
1: I would say so. And I, I think earlier on in my career, somebody gave me a book called Crossing the Chasm. And and in it,
0: hmm, yeah,
1: it, it was super popular. I think in the early oddies, late nineties, and that was kind of like the pathway for the dot-com guys. Um, but I took something from that that was like, you want to establish a beachhead. And it was all about finding a niche and exploiting this niche and like find this little area where you're really good at um and i probably completely butchered it i probably did not deploy it right but the way that i viewed it at the time was specifically that let's find a tiny market and do really well i never got to the point where we you know we got to mass market or got bigger so um, just generally speaking the lesson was just think bigger you know go go after the whole Mm. chunk of pie um, you, you, don't really have to limit yourself to really like specialty, um, type things. And I think that was one of like the first things that I really misunderstood that, that held me back.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that the idea for this company came from solving your own problem. I I've seen that a lot where you just look around and go, well, I need this and I can't get this. I wonder if I could do it myself. Yeah. Right. Uh, How long from the spotting of the issue to actually taking it seriously and saying, let's do something about this. Let's create our own company in this space. How long was that? Yeah,
1: it was probably just a few months uh, before we decided that this was an opportunity to do something. Um, And and that probably stemmed from uh, my initial undergrad education was in economics You know, we focus on all sorts of things, but the big thing when I was in school was like the cost of information and how the internet's changing everything. Cause like buying a car today, you could go online and see how much the dealer paid and what their rebates are. And, you know, you no longer have asymmetric information, but in machining, you had asymmetric information still, right? Like quoting was so hard and so difficult that like that market never came along with the internet age. So I I saw that as, that's a big opportunity so it only took about three months before we, we took that idea and turned it into something. And then I think we were kind of like playing around with it as a concept. We had a website kind of like a hack plugin to start. Um, and we were just kind of testing the waters and a couple different things for about a year. Um, and then we, we actually got like one big order and that kind of, um, set the tone for us that like, all right, this could be something big. Let's take it a little bit more seriously.
0: Were you doing both at the same time? Were you still running the previous Yeah, yeah, we
1: were doing both at the same time. And uh, even though helicopter video sounds like really cool, like it was just me and my business partner, you know, in a 600 square foot office, like soldering stuff together and, you know, assembling it. Like every (laughs) single dime that went into the company was sweat off our brow. So it was very much like garage style. Um, So, you know, yeah, it's a business, but we kind of created jobs for ourselves doing that. So the transition was kind of tricky. We needed to have enough revenue that like, all right, we could actually take a step back from this other business for a second to see if Parts Badger could work. Uh, But like I said, it was just kind of like one big order and like, all
0: right, I think. Did you already have have the infrastructure needed to take those first orders? Or did you have to go and buy like specialty equipment and stuff like that to even test the idea? Yeah,
1: actually we started, uh, the, the cool trick that we did, we came up with like instant quoting. So we developed an algorithm that allowed us to instantly quote these parts. Um, and by then we've, we established like a, a little nice supply chain over in China. Um, and that's where all of our production was. Um, so that's, oh, that's sure. how we we're doing fulfillment. And we eventually were getting some of our enclosures and mounts and things like that made overseas. So really just kind of taking care of the front end, taking care of the website, really you know, running more like a broker at a tech company than an actual manufacturer. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that we actually spun up and started our own manufacturing operations in the US.
0: What led to that? Was it just that you realized, hey, the margins would be better for us if we did it ourselves? Um, I mean, probably a variety of reasons. I mean, there's certain
1: jobs that just make sense to do in the US. So, um, you know, stuff that's really heavy or the logistics would be a challenge. Uh, We wanted to get into like government projects, all that has to be in the US. Uh, so that's kind of what initially started. It definitely morphed now where we were treating our U S manufacturing more like a lab. Um, but we're, mm. we're trying to position, I mean, the, the big vision here that we want to get to is fundamentally transforming manufacturing in the U S to be competitive globally, uh, cause right now yeah. it's just so expensive to machine. But once we figure out, you know, how we can make products quickly inexpensively compete toe-to-toe, we have a huge time advantage just by being located in the U.S. Um, and overall, I think it's really going to help uh, really close the innovation gap for organizations where they can design, get prototypes, put those through development to go to production as quickly as possible. Right now, there's a lag mm. because of every step in in the road. Our our vision is to really shrink that as, as as much as possible
0: how much further do you have to go
1: uh quite a bit um <laughs> yeah it's, <laughs> it's not easy um you know the, the market's kind of transitioning quite a bit right now what's interesting about machining is it's incredibly fragmented there aren't really many big machine shops you know there aren't like billion dollar machine shops out there for the most part so there's 19,000 competitors in the united states that we have and just recently it's been us and a couple other companies that have developed technology that could quote, we put it online, and then we're aggregating capacity. So we use a bunch of overseas manufacturing in China, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, Mexico, or own manufacturing in the U.S., domestic partners, so that for the most part, anything that comes in the door, we can quote it and get it made. doesn't matter if it's plastic or an exotic material or um you know, different types of manufacturing methods, we can kind of handle it all. And we can also quote it quickly. So if you solve those two problems, you could start getting a lot of market share. And we're seeing that right now in a lot of consolidation. And I think the vision is that the market's going to turn into an oligopoly. And then the next phase that I see beyond that is the company that can figure out how to transform manufacturing here in the United States is the one that's going to win. So that's why we're starting to make those mm-hmm. investments uh, to change things on the shop floor.
0: You're gonna have to help me because I'm not as educated as you. Would an oligopoly be a few at the top instead of like a monopoly? There's just one dominating. You think first there's gonna be almost like a few different players, but it's still it's gonna be five versus nineteen yep. thousand. Yeah, yeah,
1: hundred percent. You nailed it. Uh, just like you know, rental cars is kind of an oligopoly. Like they have Dollar and Thrifty, but they're all owned by like three or four companies. Um, that kind of control the whole market. Uh, we, we think that's kind of the way the industry's headed.
0: What's the primary user in that industry? Is it, um, you know, big businesses that need all their parts for engineering or for whatever, or is it like someone coming to you and saying, Hey, we have this event we're trying to do and we need the stage built or like, does that makes, does that make sense? Like who's the primary customer coming? Yeah, so,
1: um. Machining is like a fundamental manufacturing process. So if you think about all the ways something can be made, you can do like injection molding, stamping, forming, casting, forgings. So there's like, I don't know, a few dozen ways you can actually make something. And machining is just one of those fundamental ways. And it's taking like the raw material, the block of material and creating a finished part. So it's in aerospace and automotive and automation and, oil and gas and medical and consumer goods. So it, it really isn't limited by like a specific market, um, just because it kind of goes to the root at like how things are made fundamentally. Um, but a lot of like B2B products, generally machining is a little more yeah. expensive. So lower volume, you know, once you go high volume, usually you want to mold or something like that, but, uh, yeah, machining is used pretty much everywhere.
0: I recognize two of those just from golf. I love golf, and I'm, I'm used to seeing the cast versus the yep. forged. Right? Um, is that something that machine would ever make sense to to be a third option in the golf? Yeah, space? yeah, definitely.
1: Because even when you forge your cast, there's like post-process machining. Um, so you'd you'd machine the final shape, and then we make we make putters. Oh, gotcha. um, From time to
0: time, so yeah, gotcha. So let's look at those kind of first few years that you start a parts badger because in my mind they're like it's the day the danger zone years where it's the most that the deck is kind of stacked against you right like if we just look at the the statistics most businesses fail in those first two years what do you say would be probably maybe the the few decisions or or strategies that you all use that you think helped you survive those first few years
1: yeah i think what what a lot of businesses get wrong is they, they do things in the wrong order, um, you know, and it's maybe a little bit too much planning to start out. Hmm. Um, when we started, we knew there was an opportunity. We had no idea what that looked like. You know, we we started marketing. I think the very first thing we started with was, like, trying to get to guys that were doing 3D printing and tell them, hey, instead of 3D printing, we can get you a metal part, um, you know, a real machine metal part, and it can be reasonably expensive or reasonably priced, um, and quickly we we found out eh, not not a great market, you know, those guys don't have a whole lot of money, they don't place big orders, and, you know, we kind of found where the market is, but I think really staying flexible at the beginning, and what we did internally as an organization, we actually, like, formalized this process, and we created this thing called Friday Philosophical Forum, where we do training sessions with everybody, to talk about like, all right, what phase are we in right now? Cause everything kind of starts in an idea phase and then yep. you move on to what we call discovery phase where you need to figure out what this thing is. You need to test it. And it, it's not really important that you're efficient. Um, it's not really important even what you get out of it. What's important is that you learn, you know, and you figure out where you need to go in discovery phase. And it's not until you figure out where you want to go. That's when you start putting in the planning and the effort. And we move into a phase we call launch, where you basically take everything you learn to discovery and you turn that into like a formal operational process, whether it be like, we're going to target these customers and sell like this and, you know, make these types of products or offer these types of services. And so long as you do it that way and you have enough money to kind of like pay for yourself, you know, you, you can really do yeah. things in a, a lean, efficient way.
0: That's what I was curious about is the discovery phase is so crucial, but often it's at war with, do we have enough money to take the time to discover and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so was y'all's more bootstrapped or did you seek funding? What What did that look like to start? The yeah,
1: we, we were bootstrapped. Um, no, no outside nice. funding. I think we, like my, my buddy and I, we put together maybe 50 grand, which I mean, it's not a trivial sum of money um, to, to put together, but and I can go quick in a business. Yeah, it, it certainly can. But if, if you're smart about it in the discovery process, you know, you can really make it last. Um, you know, the trick is, you don't, you know, you don't want to build out something. Uh, you know, you don't want to spend a bunch of money on a ton of inventory before, you know, the market's there, right. You start by making a brochure. Yeah. Um, there's a really good book, uh lean startup, uh, Eric Reese. Um, yep. And, and really that, That process, that like MVP, like minimum viable product creation and being lean, um, you know, we really held to that ethos and we kind of discovered that book around the same time we were doing it and it really helped formalize everything. Um, But I I think that's the way you do it and that's the way you bridge the gap. It just, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. You know, where I see other businesses, I mean, they Um, you know, they're starting out and they're getting certifications and they're trying to get like patents and stuff. It's like, hold on. Like, you don't even know if anybody wants to buy this thing yet.
0: Yes. Yeah, man. That's, that's, that would be my personality mistake that luckily people like you and books like lean startup help temper me some, but I have that tendency to feel like I just think it's a good idea. And so let's go. Right. Versus testing your hypothesis. Like, is it the right customer? Is it the right price point? Does, does that really solve the problem even, you know? And those types of things, how long, and I'm not saying that there's like a formula, other people that would fit, but I'm just curious, how long did each of those stages last for you in those early days? Like the discovery, how, how long did each of those stages last roughly? Yeah.
1: I mean, we were probably nine months after the start of the company before we really figured out that it could be viable that this could be something big that's more than just, you know, a side project or a side job. Um, and then it it spun up really quick once we found the right market. Um, but even that, mm. the helicopter business was kind of the same way. It took us about nine months. Um, we we didn't get a cent in personally. Um, a- actually, that one was, was really dicey. I, I started driving Uber, um, you know like in the <laughs> yes. it was literally the ninth month and i started driving uber just because like i got a mortgage like i'm not going to make the mortgage um you know yeah. I, I need something here because it's not coming in and then we got you know we got a big order and then we kind of like whoo
0: you know made made it through that one but um oh dude same thing i didn't i was about one step away from that when i started my business i can't remember how long maybe it was a year in and we, I just remembered this because I got an email like a month ago from Uber saying I hadn't finished my application. <laughs> <laughs> so I had gotten far enough along to like about to apply. Yeah. And then I think something broke right around that time. I got a big contract with someone. I was like, all right, I can put this off temporarily, but I might need to come back to it. And uh, luckily I haven't had to go back. But um, I understand that that plays very well in business. For, for that discovery phase turning into, I think we found the product market fit. I think this is viable. Let's go for it. Was there a single moment that you remember that you're like, that was the indicator for us, or was it more like a, kind of an aggregate of moments towards the end? What was it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of ironic um, because the, the company's built around this ability that we had this algorithm that does all the quoting, but we had gotten a project in and based on the project, I knew it was really difficult to machine but I knew we had the right person to machine it. And I I knew we could get it across the finish line. I knew it could be there. And um, I just, you know, looking at the part, I I think our quote tool was spitting out something like $9,000, which was like a pretty decent size order, but I could just sense that like, all right, this could be a bigger opportunity here. Let's figure figure out what would be a good market price. And I just threw out a number and I said like $47,000. Let's charge $47,000 for this. The thing was like a a, a perfect sphere and like, it's really hard to machine something like that, but I'm like, we can, we can do it. I I know we can, I'm over there. I saw the facility. We can make that happen. Uh, we ended up getting the order and, uh, we booked plane tickets like a couple hours later and, you know, we flew over, we supervised everything. We got all these custom cases to like carry it back and make sure they were perfect. And we like knocked the order out of the park and the customer was so happy because they couldn't find anybody to make it. Uh, and and that's when I really realized like, all right, this, this can be big here. And let me kind of take a step back from this other business and make a go of it. Let's figure out how to scale this thing to the next level. And at that stage, I mean, it was accumulation, of everything you, you learn like 500 things in those nine months and you figure out this works. That doesn't do this more, do this less, try something different. And kind of that whole journey leads you until you get something that that really works. And then that's when you you scale it.
0: Yeah. Did you have any guiding philosophies or ways of thinking about it that helped you with the scaling effort?
1: Yeah. So we started, um, and keep in mind that you kind of read read it out a little bit in my resume, but I've been in the small business game for a long time. And by that time, I'm in my early 30s, mid 30s. There's only so long you can do the startup game Uh, just because it's so many hours. I got a young family. So right away, I knew the business had to be big. So I went to the whiteboard and I wrote uh, 833,333, which was $833,333. If we could do that a month, that's a $10 million run rate. And my goal was to get there in two years. And everything we did as far as scaling... Uh, was to hit that number.
0: What did that number represent? Why did you pick that number?
1: Uh, I I just knew if we could do like a ten million run rate business wise, like a company that's doing ten million a year, that's when I could, you know, move back down to forty hours a week, spend time with my family. My kids will be the age where they'll remember if I'm gone all the time. They'll remember yeah. if, you know, like hey, I might have seen them for two seconds in the morning, but you know, at that point in my career. Because it took me so long to learn, you know, I, I wasn't able to make those same sacrifices. So I, I knew I needed to grow the business quick so that it could be big enough that it wasn't wholly dependent upon me or, you know, one person. You really need to have a team established by then.
0: Absolutely. Did you have any fear when you walked away from that board after looking at that number?
1: Uh, Not really. Uh, You wow. know, it's it's audacious, but you know, that's, that's one thing that I think maybe, you know, starting out people aren't audacious enough, you know, if looking back, I wish I wrote a bigger number, you know, and and targeted something bigger. Um, cause we ended up hitting it. We actually hit it for a single month. It wasn't consistent, but we did have one single month where we actually broke that target within the first two years. But wow. Uh, yeah. So it, what was the destiny? What
0: were some of the keys to getting there?
1: Um, So something that we teach now in management training is uh, point B. So you you can't throw a dart looking at your hand. You look where you want to go, and then you just set that point. You set that target and say, hey, what do I need to do to get there? And you kind of realize, like, if you start thinking about, all right, where I am, I need to grow 20% or even 50%, you're framing that conversation within the parameters of where you are today. And there's a lot of like artificial barriers that get established that way because you're doing it based off of what you've done versus if you just pick something out there and work your way backwards. So you say like at $10 million, what does this company look like? You know, what are we gonna have to do per salesperson? How many salespeople will we need? How many customers will we have to have? And then you just build up the vision from there to say, this is what the the company looks like. How do we create that? How do we get to that point? um, versus kind of starting where you are and, you know, having some percentage metric, I I think it makes a lot more sense to set uh, point B and that's what we teach in our management training.
0: So is it that point B is far enough away that you're not thinking confined inside of your current reality? Because you could say point B if it's, I want a 50% growth is in the future, but are you saying it's too short that you would still confuse it for the way you've always done things?
1: Um, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the whole principle of it is you want to get outside of the paradigm that you're in. You know, if, yeah. if you take everything you have today, forget it exists as a system and just kind of evaluate it as pieces. And then you rebuild at point B, you know, or you figure out, mm-hmm. okay, this is what things look like at point B. This is what I have today. And then your plan is that gap.
0: Yeah, man. I like that a lot. Um, what are, well, first off, today, what's kind of the the size of the team? And then alongside of that, what are the current challenges and goals you're navigating now as a company?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, about 70 people globally. I think we have 45 uh, in the U.S. And then we have a uh, software development team uh, internationally. We have our production people. We actually do have a, a company in China uh, that we wholly own. Um, mainly for like quality control. So globally, we're around 70, 75. We're doing some hiring right now. Um, Revenue-wise, we're around 20 million.
0: Um, Heck yeah. Yeah. And Dude, that's a ser- That's a serious accomplishment. Again, makes- like the stages that a business goes through, that first five to 10 people is one big monument, 25 is another, 50 and beyond, like 10 million and beyond. Like, again, you're getting... Up there in the stratosphere of success in terms of just how businesses across the board are able to operate. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a whole new set of challenges too. So one one of the big problems I think we had earlier on when we started to really grow, you know, up to you know, a million to five million, for instance, is the company was evolving so quick that the skill sets that were required by individuals from you know, individuals that are really good at taking like chaos and working inside of that and like piecing things together to people that are really good at documenting systems, to people that are really good at doing the same thing every day. And, you know, the challenges are so different. So really matching up the team with the areas that we needed the skills at the right time. And then, you know, we probably spent about the last two, two and a half years doing a lot of executive development to kind of creating like a really strong leadership team. Cause we know that's, you know, that's what we need today. That's what we're going to need to get to, you know, once we're at hundred employees and 150, you need that strong leadership team. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's different challenges. I would say it gets a lot more people related as you get mm-hmm. a little bit bigger and just making sure you have the right skills, but generally, yeah, yeah generally speaking, like when you, People come into the company, nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's like figuring it out. Uh, it's the same with the team here, but we're kind of building out, you know, as we learn things and sharing that knowledge with each other, um, you know, building out good HR systems and, you know, keeping people happy and making sure things are fair and making sure systems are consistent and everything, you know, the, the systems talk to each other. Um, you know, those are the the big challenges and then at the yeah. at the same time, it's harder to scale and think outside the box when you get bigger. So that, that's probably like the biggest challenge right now is how do we maintain, you know, this double every year type growth now that we're much bigger because it's, you know, we're a little bit more cumbersome now.
0: Hmm. What I'm curious about, again, having done so many of these conversations and even the work that we get to do with companies, I like just knowing experiences, like your experience of the what I've called the, the, the transition from organic to organized, where at the beginning it's everything's organic and it works because yeah. it's just a few of us in a room and there's a few clients. And so we don't need systems and processes too much. That would slow us down, you know, and yep. it seems like most people are generalists at the beginning because you need to wear multiple hats. And then there starts to be a tip towards the need for organ organization and specialists. And it seems that, like you'd mentioned, it's hard sometimes for the people to make that transition. The ones that were there at the beginning to make the transition of what we look like as a company at 50 people Mm -hmm. and that type of thing, were you able to, I guess what I'm curious about is how many people would you guess percentage wise were able to successfully navigate that transition and find a good home in the later chapters of the company versus those that needed to go find something else and you need to bring fresh people in?
1: Uh, not a lot made the transition. Um, And I I think a lot of that was, you know, my, the the part that bugs me the most is that HR, it's so hard to put that framework in place ahead of time, especially when you don't know. And it's like Mm. not hiring the right people, not getting the right attitude fits, the right skill fits early on, and then having to shed those people. Um, It's painful. It it is, you know, and it's, uh, it's rough. It's not fair, especially like, you know, they, I messed up. And yet, you know, these individuals are the ones that now have the job hop because I messed up on the hiring decisions. So that that was tough. Uh, Luckily, we have two businesses. So we actually had people that, you know, were good at parts badger, the company grew, they were no longer good, they couldn't fit inside the systems, but they actually were really good fits at rugged video. So we transitioned them into the helicopter business. And we had like five or six people that we actually transitioned that way into that business. And that, that group of individuals, they actually left, they, they started their own company, which I think is a great thing. Um, so they went out and started their own company, but uh, that, that was really helpful for us that we kind of had this, this other entity that we were like, Hey, you actually would be a really good fit here because that's still organic. Like you describe it. Yeah. Which I think is perfect, but.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'm sure looking back, like you said, maybe we, if you had the right resources maybe you would have made some different hiring decisions but i also just wonder if certain people more naturally enjoy the early chaotic organic stage of a company yeah. and other people enjoy more of the scaled version and the more organized version of a company and that that's just kind of the the way it goes you know yep
1: yeah and and from an hr perspective i mean we definitely transition roles from one of the things we screen for is like flexibility and adaptability. And then now it's like diligence and organization. Um, right. So we definitely pivoted, you know, that. And because otherwise, I mean, the flexible, adaptable people, it's it's hard for them to operate in the system day in, day out. Sometimes they go outside the system, but then that messes up something three departments down right. the road. So, yeah, but, it, you know, I really feel a lot of that's like personality-based. Um, people kind of find where they are. And we, we have a, from an HR perspective, we use ocean. I don't know if you heard of that, like, um, personality traits, like the big five. So it's openness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, um, I'm missing one conscientiousness was a C. Um, so we kind of look at those traits as well and, and kind of get a feel for where people are at. Because generally speaking, I mean, you you're not going to change somebody's personality, nor would you want to, you know, you're going right. to, you're going to find the best people for the role that really match that from a personality perspective.
0: Yeah. One of the best ways I've heard it described, we, we partnered with a company called the Predictive Index that does very similar stuff, right? right? Like it can be used both in the ongoing training and development of people, but also in making sure they're a good fit for the role and the company and that kind of thing. The way they put it, I thought was really helpful, which is you're not just looking at personality, but it is one of like three things, you know? So one is like your skill set. They call it like Mm -hmm. the bag, the bag of tools you bring in. The second is your personality. Like certain jobs are going to just always grind against you and like Mm -hmm. rob you of energy and others are going to more naturally promote energy in you. Um, And then the third is like a kind of character and culture fit, you Mm -hmm. know? And I'm like, I like that because we're not just saying it's all about personality. That's the only thing we look at. But it's like, no, it is that. That's one of it. It's like three, you know, yeah. that if we put you in the wrong seat, man, if you're an innovator and you're a risk taker and I put you in a a boring, every day's the same, and you're just overseeing systems, you are going to die on the inside. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter how you spin it, you know? And so you'd be doing them a disservice hiring them for that job, right? Yeah, I, I love that. That sounds...
1: That sounds great. I, I love when I hear that too, because I, I do a lot of reading and I read different books and I hear these things and they all interconnect, right? They're all kind of saying yes. the same thing, but differently. And that's how, you know, you got it right. Cause we, we do something similar, you know, in addition to the attitude hiring, you know, we do the skills based and blending that together. I, I love that you mentioned that. That sounds like a really awesome yeah. program.
0: I'm, I'm remembering now the, the analogy they use was head, heart and briefcase. Okay. So like, Head was like wiring, like personality wiring. Like, is this wiring going to fit the role we're putting you in? Heart was like character and culture assessment. And then briefcase was like your kind of skill set and experience and whether that's going to match up here. And I was like, I'm never going to forget that. Head, heart, and briefcase. Like, those are three things to try your best. We're always guessing to a degree, but try your best to evaluate. And I think it's a both situation. Like, I'll never forget uh, reading – Uh, Yvonne Chouinard's book, the guy that started Patagonia, and he was talking about when you let somebody go that doesn't fit your company, you are also doing them a favor and a degree, if you see it that way, of finding somewhere they would fit really well. Mm -hmm. And I think about the same way at the beginning. Like, I want you to evaluate through whatever lens makes sense for you, whether you think this is a good opportunity for you, right? Like, we want it to be a win-win where you're pumped and we're pumped. And if it's, if, it, if either party's not happy, then both parties are not going to be happy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So that, 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 kind of expanded my brains Cause I always just took it like, oh, I'm so bummed. And I, I failed them instead of going like, but maybe it's the opportunity for them to go find something they'd really like, instead of trying to force a square peg to fit a round hole here. Right. Yeah.
1: hundred percent.
0: So for, for you, as you kind of look up now, what's the next point B, what's the next point B for, for this company?
1: Yeah. I mean, the goal right now is, you know, we want to double, but you know, the longer term uh, vision is we want to take the thing public. Uh, We think we need to hit about 150 million in revenue to get there. Once we get to that range, that's when we're going to have opportunities to, you know, attract a lot more capital inexpensively and really invest in the technologies we need and scaling the manufacturing in the U S Cause it's going to take a ton of capital at that point to make that happen. But hopefully we'll have the technology and everything queued up. But you know, our vision, we want to take the thing public.
0: Cool. Heck yeah. Uh, how long have you known that you want to take it public from the beginning or recently or what? I would say more recently. And, and that, that comes back to like not thinking big enough. Like in retrospect, I look
1: back, it's like, Oh, why wasn't I thinking bigger? Uh, but you know, we, we kind of saw some some other businesses that are similar, even some that are similar size to us right now that are venture-backed, and they went public recently with all the SPACs. So a couple of them went, went public. They're about the same size as us, you know, and they, they have billion-dollar valuations. You know, they're able to raise wow. capital really inexpensively, even through equity. Um, and, you know, there's there's one kind of like big competitor right now. Um, in the market space that kind of hit that 150 million revenue range and went there. So kind of seeing that and seeing, all right, these are the numbers we need to hit um, to get there. But, you know, Do you think
0: you'll need to raise any capital to get there?
1: I'm not sure. We're, we're going to try to do it bootstrapped. Um, We're big enough now where there's other debt vehicles available. So we can take on like senior debt, and things like that without diluting equity. Um, so we just need to grow a little bit more. What is, what is more. senior
0: debt? Is that, is, is that like a business loan or what was that?
1: Yeah. So w- when you're big enough, they can value you based on like enterprise value. So it's not just like balance sheet where they look at, all right, these are the assets. How many desks, computers, machines, you know, this right. is how much AR you have. You know, then they start looking at, oh, all right, you have all this intellectual property. This is your tech stack and we can say okay your company's worth you know 50 million 100 million right now we can loan against that um and and there might be a little equity piece associated with it but it it's a way not to get really diluted um, yeah. and you can kind of get money in as if it was uh you know private equity or or growth equity coming in without you know really peeling off a significant portion of your company to give it away but the problem is those aren't available for little companies. you need to kinda of be big enough to right. get there, so even at at twenty million run rate, we're still not big enough. We will be shortly, but um uh, we're we're kind of waiting for that we we hope we're we're able to to fund a lot of the growth a lot quicker uh using vehicles like that.
0: yeah, man. It's so funny. we just got done my wife and I just got done watching uh we crashed on okay. Apple. Have yeah. you seen that? yeah, yep. It was so to me. It was just an interesting story inside of growth and scaling and mistakes uh, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm curious, when you watch that, were there any like keep that in mind as, as as we grow and scale this company?
1: Well, I think in general, you know, it's it's good to be audacious. Um, you know, there there comes a time where it's just like, it's fraud. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't, right. you can't misrepresent facts, right? I right. mean, you can put a little marketing spin on this or that. But um, I, I think in general, just making sure that, you know, you can back it up, especially now where the organization is. I mean, you talk about like head, heart, briefcase on that heart side. I know I have 70 families, depending on me not to mess up. And how risky do I want to be, especially now as an organization and, you know, just making sure that we don't do things that, you know, jeopardize that and we stay connected and it's not growth at all costs and trying to hit these numbers yeah. that like, these are people's lives. This is all of our opportunity that we created together, you know, to advance our careers and take on new opportunities and, um, you know, have access to, to things that you wouldn't have access to because... You know, in the Midwest, there aren't a lot of fast growing companies like this, but I can tell you, like our senior executives, a lot of them started out at entry level positions and now they have the opportunity to run significant portions of operations. Mm. So you need to like really cherish the vehicle that's been created, the opportunity vehicle and 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 protect that to some degree. Um, yeah. While, while still, you know, you're focused on growth, but not at all costs.
0: Yeah, it was it was hard to watch, and I know we were watching a dramatic version of the story, and probably exaggerated in some ways. But there were so many moments that I just wanted to be able to jump into into to the to the story and say like, stop. Even now, you can get away with it if you just stop right here and slow down. You could backfill some of the mistakes you made and level this ship out, and still have one of the biggest companies around. And he just kept kept doubling down and kept going and Oh, it was, my my wife goes, this is giving me anxiety (laughs) watching this right now. And it's not even our story, you know? Um, But anyways, what, if we go back to the learning, I always like to ask this and we kind of capture this as a podcast, any books um, that you found to be particularly useful for you, whether personally or for business that you find yourself recommending often?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned Lean Startup, Uh, Eric Reese, I believe, Rice Reese. Not yep. sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And then all of our executive team, we take them through Personal MBA. A guy named Josh Kaufman put together a really good book that it, it tracks very similar to everything you learn in an MBA program.
0: Is and he? Is he connected with uh, Seth Godin? I'm not sure. Okay, because I thought he had something called the same thing or something very similar.
1: Okay, um, but yeah, that this Pers- book in personal particular MBA is what it's called. Yeah, Personal MBA. Um, and it's, it's like crash course. And even if it's stuff, you know, it's reinforcement in recency, right? It's always good to keep recent, um, how to win friends, influence people has been a good one. That's, uh, Carnegie. Yep. Um, and then the first four or five chapters of extreme ownership. (laughs) Yeah. I, I like that. Like those chapters, I just don't, those are on a different level than the rest of the book. So I just kind of recommend the first four or five. What a great
0: caveat. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. awesome.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a good book, but I think like as far as like the books you recommend, right? You kind of hold those yeah. to a higher level. And yeah. I hold the first four or five chapters to that level.
0: I've not read it. I've always liked the concept is, you know, Jocko Willenick's book. Um, mm-hmm. But now I'm going to have that in mind if I do pick it up and be like, all right, let's see the difference in the first four or five chapters and the rest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have a really good key concept, but I mean, they got to fill 200 and some pages. So they kind of reach a little bit on some of the other concepts, but um, I I really like that
0: one. Awesome. Awesome. Well, those are some great recommendations, man. Um, And then just kind of, I guess the last, the last note would be is if someone's listening right now, they're in the middle of the hard grind of trying to make their idea work and scale this company to get to a good livelihood and that kind of thing, what piece of encouragement would you pass along to them?
1: Always bet on yourself. Yeah. You know, for like encouragement. And and this is something my dad actually said to me, um, which he hasn't been the most encouraging individual um, for kind of like polar opposites personality wise. But uh, he said to me one, one time he's like, well, you know what, Roy, you always figure it out. Like, and, you know, just looking back to have that confidence in yourself that like you'll figure it out. Like you'll get Mm -hmm. there, bet on yourself, understand no one's there to save you. Like you have to do this. Like it is on you, but you are going to figure it out because you have to. So just, just take like internal peace and solace in that, that you will figure it out. You'll get there.
0: Man, that strikes a chord. I mean, that was the exact phrase that someone else told me at the beginning of me launching my business that I hung on to. He was like, You know what you're really doing? It's not this business. You are finally betting on yourself. And I was like, That is the heart of what I'm doing, you know? Um, So, man, that really strikes a chord. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, brother. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day sharing your story, sharing your wisdom with us. It has been uh, incredibly valuable for me. Yeah. Thanks, Drew. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.